All right. Today we're back in our study of the book of Romans. We're in lesson number 14. And we're dealing with the subject of the benefits of justification by grace through faith, part two. Uh, Today we're looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 2b, or not 2b, to verse 5a. The only thing I will say to bring us up to speed without a full reintroduction of the book is simply this. There are five parts to the book of Romans as we looked at, and that is the first deals with the issue of sin as we know, and that's chapters 1 to 3, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then chapters 3 to 5, which we're in near the end of, is the issue of, of salvation. And that is, you're only saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Well, that's where we are today. And we've looked at justification. In a moment, we'll read the text. And that is, we have been justified, but now we're at the present tense of, we have these benefits from God as a result of that justification. Let me read verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, past tense, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith. In those first two verses, we have that we have a new relationship. Because of justification, we have a new relationship with God. Last week we said we have peace with God. That is, we're no longer at war with God, and God is no longer at war with us, and we have access to God in a way that we never had before. In the next couple verses, 3 to 5, that we're looking at today, we're looking at a new purpose in God, namely that we have not only obtained this stance in God, but we exult in the hope of the glory of God future. Been justified, we have peace and access But now we're going to look today at the new purpose that we have in God. The beauty of this new package that we talked about, the contract, the justification contract that has all these wonderful benefits, is this. Now life makes sense. I said to Carla uh, sometime in this past year, again, we're celebrating our 39th wedding anniversary next weekend. But I said to her, like, until I met her, life never made sense. And I meant that. I don't just say that publicly because before I knew Christ and before I knew my wife, life was just like, what? And then it's been 39 years of, oh, life makes sense. And that's what justification has done for us. Everything that we were doing before we knew Christ as our Savior had no purpose. It appeared to be random, appeared to be without purpose. And if you think of your life just weeks before you knew Christ as your Savior, and you dialed back into the real whatever you were doing, you'd realize while you thought you might have purpose, it was vanity. And what comes with this wonderful package of justification is a completely new purpose. Now two things are true in this passage about our current situation. We exalt in the future glory of God. We boast in it. We're excited about it. Why? Because now life makes sense. The things that have happened to us and have been happening to us will bring glory to God in the future, says Paul. And the second benefit of this purpose is this. Our current trials, not just our future glory, our current trials will make sense in a Romans 8.28 sense. For we know that all things work together for good 
to those who are called according to his purpose. So what we're looking at today, that benefit, is the new purpose we have. The purpose of glorifying God in the future, the purpose of bringing glory through our life now, through our current sufferings. So let me continue and read verses 3 to 5. But not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is a part of the whole new assurance from God. There are three things in this passage that God has given as a third part of the package. Assurance, the work of the Holy Spirit given to us to assure us that the love of God is true for us. And then in verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that second part is we have a new assurance. The Holy Spirit tells us God loves you. Secondly, Christ's death on the cross tells you God loves you. And then thirdly, we have a freedom from the future wrath, verse 9. Much more, we talked about Dayenu last week, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall, future tense, be saved from the wrath of God through him. And verse 10. For if we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then finally, we have a new worship. Verse 11. Not only this, but we exalt, we worship, we bless God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay, so in very summary, and welcome back, good morning. Everybody doing okay? Transitioning between Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know, that, that season of like, man, we pulled it off. Wait a minute, we have to do that again. <laughs> do I just see those relatives again? Yes. Uh, that was so fun, you know. Uh, so a new relationship with God we looked at last week. A new purpose is what we looked at today. Let's turn to page two and dive into our text. A new purpose in God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God and of our trials having purpose in God, verse 2 to 5. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, which we covered last week. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. Hope does not disappoint. What are we talking about? We should probably define five or six terms, right? Because Paul's throwing a lot of stuff in there. And the word exult, I just don't use that on a regular basis. You know, I don't get up in the morning and go, I exult this morning. So let's kind of dive into that. What are some of the terms he used so we can start to break down this passage? First of all, he says we exult twice. We exult in God, in the future hope of his glory, and in our tribulations. What does that mean? Boasting. Enthusiastic endorsement. That's what it means. Yes! We boast in God's glorious future that everything that's happening to us is going to lead to a day when we're all in heaven together, having trusted Christ, 
And we're going to go around his glorious throne saying, yes. But we have as a benefit of justification. This is not a command to exalt. This passage is not commands. This passage is a reality that this benefit package of justification comes with an internal boast-a-meter. <laughs> and it has changed the way we purpose our life. It's an evidence that you're a believer. It comes with this package. If you start seeing, yes, yes, in the glory of God. If you cry when you hear the song, is he worthy? You're probably a Christian. <laughs> That's what this passage is talking about. The exaltation of God, the future promise of his glory, and the view in your head is like, I'm going to be there. Amen. That's the hope. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so it's the exaltation of God. It's an enthusiastic endorsement that you believe it. Faith is clearly, I believe that to be true. Hope, when it is related to faith, has the element of believing, but hope is that desire to see it. And the eye of faith that says, I will. So we hope. We believe not only, yeah, I know people are going to see it. But I'm going to see it is an enthusiastic endorsement that comes with the package. Now, does that mean everybody walks around happy? No, there's a few of you in here approve that. All right. Wow, that was bad. No, it does, it's not talking about happiness here. It's talking about that inner sense of confidence that comes, sometimes doesn't seem to be there. But overall, in the life of a believer, there's a desire for, a hope for, and an engaged belief that you will see the glory of God in its fulfillment. So then what is hope? It is a confident assurance of a yet future positive outcome. Confident. You know today, believer, you know you're going to see him. And so all this other junk, when you drive to church or what you're dealing with or you're having to entertain people for Christmas who are lousy people, I just said my theme of the day. That you know there's something bigger and greater and you are confident it's going to happen. Thirdly, what is it we are confident in? The glory of God. That can be a little nebulous, can it? What exactly are we talking about in the glory of God? Now, I'm going to define it and then give an illustration real quick or, or a point of reference. It's the magnification of God's person and plan leading to genuine worship and soul-satisfying experience in him. Now, I say that it is the magnification. God is all-glorious. Nobody's giving God glory. That is, we don't give him something that he lacks, Right? God's glorious presence and his glory of his being is sufficient in itself. Nobody's giving him anything. It's better to think of glorifying God as magnifying God in the eyes of others and in your own eyes. When you look properly through a lens at something that is already beautiful, it magnifies, like if you're at Yosemite and you're taking pictures, uh, you get a good lens, you can see up close and see the magnitude of how wonderful it is. It is what it is. But we magnify God through our life and our death, and we show God off to other people through what our lens is that people can look through. And so what are tribulations then? What does it mean we exalt? 
we enthusiastically endorse our tribulations. That's crazy talk for most people, right? It's like, you've got to be out of your mind. But this is what you know because you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ. That the trials that God has put you through, that you've survived, at the end of them you said, I must be a Christian because I still trust in the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That is a part of the package. That How could I have come through that by the grace of God? That was, that was terrible. That, that was life-numbing. And I still trust him. Not because I'm so faithful to God, but God has been so faithful to this package to continue to work in me that which is going to be until the day of his redemption. And so our tribulations, our circumstances, and experiences in life which apply such pressure as the tempt us to quit, to run to idols, or despair. Right? Circumstances in life that tempt us by their pressure to quit. I don't believe in this anymore, or what's the point? Or my life isn't going anywhere. This is ridiculous. This is too much. Or to run to idols. Chocolate cake. (laughs) That'll solve this. An idol can be anything which takes the place of the glory of God in our life. So think of an old school, this is an old school refrigerator. (laughs) Right? A few, not a few years ago, many years ago, Carlo read a book, and I just co-opted an idea out of the book, but I want to share it with you. A lady had dealt with all kinds of food issues in her life, okay? And then was starting to get victory near the end of her life. And she put something on her refrigerator, which I always remember. She put a placard on her refrigerator, and this is what it said. It's not in there. (laughs) (laughs) We run to idols because we think it's in there. And when we're under special temptations or trials that God knows how to dial up for us, Not to tempt us to evil, but to put that pressure on who do you really love? Who do you really trust? And then thirdly, this pressure can lead us to despair. Tempt us to quit, run to idols, or tempt us to despair. How is it that we exult? We enthusiastically endorse our trials. Well... Our trials lead to two things, according to this passage. Three, actually. Perseverance. The God-given fruit of patiently waiting on the Lord's timing and outcomes while growing in joyful assurance of his goodness. That's a lot to say. What is perseverance? It's a God-given fruit of patiently waiting on the Lord's timing and outcomes while growing in joyful assurance of his goodness. Sometimes it can be a trial like Job's. Doesn't seem to be any end to it. And Job's experience, if you have been there, many of you have in those Job experiences of life, not nearly what Job, but the idea that you're in a free fall and there's no bottom. You know, there's those machines, the wind machines, where you can be up the whole time. But think of this, that trial in which it seems like you've fallen off the cliff, 
and there's absolutely no bottom. You've been falling so long. You're like, just let me hit the ground. It'd be better to die. It'd be better to just have this over with because the trial is so intense. The pressure is so deep. You're just like, can we just end this? And yet there's a free fall in which it's you and God alone. And these are the type of things in which perseverance is that fruit delivered by the Spirit during those times of long suffering in which God is working in you a Christ-like character that could not have been worked out without that trial. Special delivery. You know, there's things which people in this room, if we, if we had you come forward, we'd be shocked at the pain and suffering you've been through. Not shocked that anyone could be, but we, we may not know that about you. So you could come up and give you the mic, and you'd be like, okay, this is what happened to me. And then when I was five, and then this, and then this terrible outcome. And this is how I suffer today. And we might be amazed because our suffering will seem so small. But we also know that God in his sovereignty and his wisdom does not cause everyone to suffer the same way because he's not made everyone the same person. And what is the suffering to one person would not be as much of a suffering to other people. The circumstances being what they are, that person's resiliency or their background or their history. And so God dials up specific ones but then dials up specific answers to those to make us more like Christ. And then finally, what does it all lead to? Proven character. The God-given fruits of the Spirit which allow us to be conformed to the image of Christ. All right, that's my introduction. Pastor? Yes, ma'am. Um, I was looking at that box at the top and at the end of the box, number five, and hope does not disappoint, and I was thinking... When you drove clear across country and came here, we trust that that wasn't your reaction. (laughs) (laughs) And that's very clever. (laughs) And to show you how crazy my mind is, uh, our work together is, while I was reading that passage just moments ago, and I read that, I was like, I might say something about that. No, I won't. (laughs) But now that you have me out there, yes, hope has not disappointed. Carla and I are blessed to be at this church, and uh, we can't believe our our fortune in God's glory uh, that we're here. So it's, it's been a blessing. So We're glad to have you. Well, thank you. Let's just keep going. Yes. All right. <laughs> so this quote by C.S. Lewis, most of you have read this, heard it, maybe memorized it. I think it's wonderful. But I think it summarizes what we're about to look at, namely this. Even in our trials, even in our tribulations, even in everything in life, we still have a future hope of the glory of God And C.S. Lewis says this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That's why it's not in there. But if I'm going to cross-pollinate ideas, if you will, go to Narnia with me. (laughs) <laughs> Can we go behind and see Mr. Tumnus? Right. Is that, if you will, it's not in the refrigerator, but behind the refrigerator, through the suffering of all of that, is something glorious that God is building up. And we are looking for something here to answer it. But there's something better than chocolate cake. But our desire to have that inner person behold that desire for fullness and 
completeness and love and joy and peace and all the things we desire that we go looking for will be satisfied in the world to come. Now, it's not a celestial palace in which our desire to come to Christ. We're not talking about the gospel. We don't preach the gospel as, hey, Jesus will fill up your love cup. <laughs> no, we have disobeyed a holy God and broken his law. And we are, he is at war with us. And without justification through Christ, we are his enemies. But having been justified, he's the one throwing out the package saying, friends, we're at peace. Friends, you have access. Friends, you're going to exult in my glory and long for it, and you're going to see it as a part of the package. So. Uh, Jose, did you have something? Yeah. Less hopeful. <laughs> I totally know what you mean. And so hear, hear me out on this. I think what you're asking is a really good segue for us. When I say this passage doesn't command us to do those things, Paul's got plenty of book left in which from verse 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 1 and following, therefore, right? Uh, therefore, based on the mercy of God, I beseech you, brethren, to... I therefore beseech you, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. But you know Paul constructs all his books this way. He tells us who God is, what our problem is, who we are in Christ. And then he says, therefore. And then commands like crazy. And so it's, been, it's Paul's pattern. And we are mainly in the first five chapters, mainly in the indicatives. I'm sorry, the, the indicatives, not the imperatives. But this book will go to imperatives. That is, therefore, don't do this, therefore do that. But it will be based on our identity in Christ and all these benefits and the glory of it so that Christ gets the glory and it's not just hanging on by a thread. And so to answer the question in large, yes, we have responsibility for our own sanctification, but not without the identity in Christ. So he's building that now. But in chapter 6 and following, he will have a lot of things to say, if that makes sense. Okay? Yeah. Very good. Okay. Point 2 on page 2. Oh, Angela. Just real fast to that um, question. I was reading Tim Keller's book this week, and he had just pointed out that the more we take advantage of the access that we have in Christ, the more that will feed our hope to seeing that great. Absolutely. 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 The more we're in his presence now, the less surprising it will be later. And no, it will. Um, to, To just use the funny illustration from last week, but insurance, or two weeks ago, the more time we spend with the insurance agent and the more time we read the policy, right, the scriptures and spend more time with Christ, then it becomes a reality of do we love him and not simply do we obey him. And, you know, what I love is John's, uh, or Peter's interaction with Jesus in John chapter 21 on the beach, you know, relative to that is we have stuff to do for God. And Jesus starts out, as you know, he says, do you love me? Uh, Well, you know, sort of, I'm not agape, but I'm, you know, uh, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And we we both know, out of a, a fullness of the water of our own lives comes real ministry and real life to help other people. And um, anyway, God does a lot more with running water than stagnant pools in our life. Those kind of things. That's good. You just gave me preaching ground. Sorry, Angela. I'm sorry. Okay, point two on page two. 
I've tried to do this on each of the benefits. Well, that seems like a good benefit, but I, you know, I've been doing pretty good. Let's just refresh our minds on four ways that we did not glorify God prior. And this is true of all of us. A, we, we used to dishonor God's glory by exchanging God's glory for idols. That's the point. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. All of us are guilty, before we knew Christ, at some level of being idolaters. Loved ourselves, loved other things more than Jesus. And we had exchanged... Excuse me, exchange his glory for idols. B, how had we dishonored God prior to our salvation? By wasting our lives and living below the purpose for which we were created. God made us for a purpose, and we were not fulfilling that purpose. Uh, that's the ultimate way you dishonor God, is by rejecting his purposes for his own glory. And so, of course, Romans 3.23, just think of its effect, what it is saying. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's not simply you've fallen short of the moral compass, but you've fallen short of all that brings glory, glory to God. And so we have not fulfilled the purpose for which we're created. Now, we might look in the bigger piece, but God created us. And his salvation of us includes those time leading up to our salvation. And it will ultimately bring glory to God because of his great plan. But we're told that during that time we were not Christians. We were clearly not bringing glory to God. We were falling short of doing so. And friends, we used to dishonor God, see, by joining Satan's rebellion and seeking glory for ourselves and not for the Lord. I take this passage from Acts 12 where Herod... Um, it says this of him. The people kept crying out after he'd made a speech. The voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. That is a bad weekend. <laughs> Honey, I'm going out. I'm going to say some things to the people. They're going to chant my name. They're going to say, I'm a God. It's, I'll be back in about a half an hour. You're dead. We weren't killed because God is in his mercy. But the truth is that all of us, in some way, shape, or form, were our own little gods. And it followed Satan's rebellion of, I can be greater than God. I can be equal to God, right? I can be the God of my own life. I'm the captain of my salvation, or captain of my own soul, whatever it is. And then D, Invictus, right? D, by stubbornly refusing to repent. Even with all of that, exchanging, wasting our lives, joining the rebellion, God has given merciful opportunities to trust in him. And the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 9, after the bull judgments and the things are happening and all this crazy is happening in the world, and people know it's God doing this. Why? Because they're saying, we hate you, God. No, nobody on the earth apparently is like, I wonder why this stuff's happening. The, the lie of Antichrist, and that's a whole eschatological thing, but whatever lies are being told, they don't even believe them anymore. 
alien spaceships and pizza and whatever. You know, Oakland Raider fans or LA Raider fans or Las Vegas Raider fans, where do they even live anymore? Okay? <laughs> they're evil, okay? But whatever people are convinced of during the tribulation, at some point they're going to realize this is no coincidence. <laughs> the whole earth is under the wrath of God. And the response in verse chapter 16, 9 is, Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. We, without the grace of God, would join that mob. And just last piece, in its fullest sense, this is not the most heinous thing that could have happened. It would be the crucifixion of the Son of God. And that is that rebel like, crucify him, crucify him in the crowd, right? Friends, if we were there, we would have been yelling, crucify him. We, we wouldn't have been the voice in the crowd like, hey, no, guys, this is, no, he's great. Crucify him, crucify him. And then the leaders yelled, let his blood be on us and on our children's children. So, so those are ways in which we all, even if we weren't there, have participated in some substance in not honoring God. So page three. What does the benefit package come from? Come with? It comes with this. That's not what you're going to do the rest of your life. Will you have moments in which you dishonor God? Yes. But the overall tenor... And the promised birthright is that your life, if truly a believer, justified, the justification package is going to lead your life to these implications. That number three, Christ in us is the hope of glory. Now, there's a lot of Bible passages here. I hope you like the Bible. I don't always fill pages of Bible references without my own note parts, but I don't think I can make these points without reading the text. A, the hope of fulfilling the God-given purpose for which we were elected and created. What is our hope now? That we exalt, we hope, we boast in God's future glory through our lives. And that is A, that we are hoping for the fulfillment of our God-given purpose for which we are elected and created. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Everything, of course, is for his glory, but specifically we are made for that purpose. Romans 8, 28, and 39, the purpose for which we were created. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's good. What is it? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. We've kind of looked at this passage a little bit, and we will in the future, but the point of it is, in Christ now, You are part of the purpose of God, which is the eternal purpose of God, to conform us into the image of Christ. There's not a purpose that you're in in your life that's below the greatest purpose. You you are saved for this very purpose, to make Christ known and be shown in eternity to be a trophy of his grace. Romans 9.11, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but by him who calls. What is God's purpose? That he's elected a group to save, to be conformed to the image of Christ, so that those bring glory 
to him. And then, bless you, 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Guys, the thing is, it's not simply the purpose of now. Why am I going to write on this refrigerator? I don't know why. What Paul is doing here is these first few verses is talking about the eternal purpose of God. Election, predestination, he chose you for this purpose to conform you to the image of Christ. Predestination is your final destination. What is the purpose of your life? To glorify God. To glorify God. But again, this passage is not saying, therefore, go out and glorify him in your daily life until the next verse is where it's saying, even in tribulation, the stuff of life, your life will bring glory to God. But the eternal purpose, and then he's going to get to what I'd say is the underbelly, and that is tribulation. While we're waiting for that eternal consummation that shows our lives made sense in God's giant purpose, our tribulations make sense and bring glory to God as well. Very simple, maybe I'm being pedantic. There we go. Ephesians chapter 1. Seems warm in here to me. We're doing that on purpose, you know. Anybody controlling that, Gwen? Let's take it down to 60, Scott. Just kidding. <laughs> Morning. All right, Ephesians chapter 5. Right? Along the purpose. In love, he predestined us to adoptions as son through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind attention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. Three times in Ephesians 1, it tells us that three things have happened to us. Why? For the glory of God. In verse 11, in him also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of the glory, of praise of his glory. And you were sealed in him, that's the third part, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance and a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So all of this eternal plan was to the praise of his glory. All these wonderful benefits that have been given to us are to bring glory to God. B, the hope of personal suffering being swallowed up in glorious victory. Isn't it going to be great to be in heaven and all the sufferings behind us? Not simply that, oh, well, that's over with, but God will bring it all to its summation and consummation. He will not waste any sin. He will not waste anything. Justice will be done in the future. Suffering based on injustice in the world will be reconciled. Nobody's going into God's eternal presence uh, without the justice issue being taken care of. God's like, okay, we're going to deal with that now. Everything will be reconciled in Christ. Nobody's going to get away with anything. Nobody's getting away on God. Yeah, but they committed these atrocities. Yeah, they're going to stand before God. It will all be just and clarified. No, nobody's getting away with any crimes. Nobody's getting away with anything. Um, not in the eternal purpose of God. So the hope of personal suffering being swallowed up in glorious victory. I love Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then finally, see, not finally, but finally on page three, the hope of personal suffering being a means of others seeing God's glory, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. I must be hungry today because I'm going to draw something up here with food in it again. <laughs> but it's not in there. It's like medicine. <laughs> medicine is, uh, just imagine, it's a jar. <laughs> and I'm going to put peanut butter. Some of you might be allergic to that. All right. Peanut butter jar. The idea here is that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Is uh, The peanut butter is the treasure, and it's in a vessel, an earthen vessel, just whatever. And you can't get to it unless you open the lid, or, if you imagine, something else that you would have to crack open to get into. But the treasure is within. What is this treasure in earthen vessels in our lives? It's not our behavior. It's not our goodness. It's Christ. Christ is our treasure. Christ is that earthen treasure. How does, how does God use our lives, our suffering, to bring about his glory? By making a crack in the peanut butter jar in which Christ is exposed and magnified in the eyes of others who see us go through crazy things. And they're like, how is that happening? And Christ is exposed through that and out into the lives of other people where they're like, that is amazing. We have this wonderful thing, but it has to be cracked open. Something has to happen. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot gave the illustration simply of the teacup. Actually, it's an Amy Carmichael illustration that Elizabeth Elliot picked up on. But that is of the teacup, and she asked the question, if you put tea in a teacup and you jostle it with a stick, you jostle the teacup, what will come out of the teacup? Tea. Tea, right. Um, these things happen in our lives to jostle our teacup so that which is truly our, our value, our love, whatever, will come out. Um, it's the idea that trials happen in order to expose in us what is it we truly love. And so at the bottom of the page, three, therefore we do not lose hope or heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's a lot of notes today. I'm not planning on going through all of them. If I do, it's some providence of God. Some of those are there for your... Uh, Afterglow. <laughs> Page four then. The hope of experiencing his glorious presence and vic triumphant victory. At the bottom of the page, let me point out, is that song that I mentioned, Is He Worthy by Andrew Peterson, right? I think I've listened to that about ten times this week in preparation for this. And, uh, of course, that idea has led me to Revelation 5, which was the impetus of him writing that particular modern, <coughs> modern hymn. 
Um, guys, when I think of the greatest hope we have, it is of experiencing the glory of God ourselves. <clears throat> and not through the stories only of the Bible or those who passed before and <clears throat> excuse me, saw his glory, or Moses, or John who fell at his feet as dead, and or Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. These are amazing stories of being in the Shekinah glory presence of God. Isaiah chapter 6, high and lifted up. You know, I was undone. You know, John in the book of Revelation, who knew him, when he saw him, he fell on his face as if he was a dead man. And these guys knew him. I want to see him. And by God's grace, I will. And I don't know what I'm going to be like in that moment. You know, there's so many songs that swirl around, you know. I, I don't know. Mostly, I think I'll just be on my face yelling, I can't believe I'm here. <laughs> right? Thank you, God. Mm. Mm. That's right. It's so important. That's right. Not to just show up uninvited, you know, and all of that. So Revelation chapter 5, it may take me a minute or two to read it, obviously, but let's think about that moment because this is our promised birthright, Revelation 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are, are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. For you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God, with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth." Then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them were myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And I heard every created thing. That's amazing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them saying to him who sits on the throne and the lamb to be the, be the blessing, the honor, the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures were saying, amen. And the elders fell down 
and worshipped. The Bible is full of scenes that have already taken place. This is the scene in which we will be there. The scene follows the rapture of the church. It's in heaven. Not one of us alive today is going to not be there if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a description of a yet future moment of your life. You will be there with me. So Andrew Peterson's song, of course, Is He Worthy? I am one of the Lord's worst singers. Lauren, Lauren, is that too much to ask you? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows steepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Good verse, dude. That's great. This old creation groaning is. Is a new creation coming is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this is. later that was me singing <laughs> Lauren that was not just great singing that was a blessing thank you thank you yeah. all right our hope of that future glory leads to page five and our conclusion Paul's conclusion of the matter Number four on page five. Not only are we motivated by the future hope of glory, but also by our present growth in Christ. That's what he hangs on. We see a future, but it's the surviving and the growth in our lives that we see Christ being magnified through our trials. And again, that's what Paul says. And not only this, that we look to the future, but we also exult, boast, enthusiastically endorse our tribulations. Knowing that, tribulation brings three things. Perseverance, 
and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. So again, what are tribulation circumstances experienced in life which apply such pressure as the tempt us to quit, run to idols, or despair? And what is perseverance? The God-given fruit of patiently waiting on the Lord's timing and outcomes while growing in joyful assurance of his goodness. I think these two quotes are helpful from a Puritan and the Westminster Confession, and that is this. When God calls a sinner, he does not repent of it. That is, God does not repent of it. God does not, as many friends do, love one day and hate another. Or as princes who make their subjects favorites and afterwards throw them into prison. This is the blessedness of a saint. His condition admits of no altercation. God's call is founded upon his decrees, and his decree is immutable. Acts of grace cannot be reversed. God blouts out his people's sins, but not their names. And then the Westminster Confession, more in a theological manner, says, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Now we know that within Christendom, uh, there's different views on this idea of perseverance, and I'm not going to do a theology of perseverance today. That's deeper in the book. But there are two things to be in mind of. The scriptures do teach us two clear truths. We must persevere till the end. And we will persevere. If it was you must, then it's all based on us. Or on some hopeful usage. But God's promise to us is you will persevere. But you must persevere. But if you're persevering, you must be. (laughs) So let's just read the definitions. You must persevere until the end. God's requirement of his people. God does not merely command us to begin to believe for a time. And then fall away. He requires us to continue to believe until the end. Living lives of repentance and covenant faithfulness. Granted, he does not ask for a perfect faith. But he does ask for a real faith. One that produces real lasting change. But if you stop there, you're not doing the whole covenant contract plan. God also says, and again, we have many scriptures to look at. But you will persevere until the end. God's preservation of his people. We will persevere because God preserves us. God will keep us from falling. Not one will be lost of all those who belong to the Son. True believers are not able to leave Christ, for Christ is at work within them. And what is proving character then? On the next page, I'm going to develop that idea of perseverance, but let's stay here for a moment. Then what does this lead to? If you persevere through trials, it leads to proven character. In my estimation, the proven character we're talking about is the fruits of the Spirit, which are the demonstration of at least nine essential qualities of Christ-likeness. And my diagram at the bottom is rather not awesome. But what I'm trying to demonstrate is left to right is this. The trials, they look random because there's different little circles there. The challenges of life, the temptations, the trials, create questions. Will I love in this situation in which I'm being persecuted? Will I, jo- will I have joy in this terrible sorrow? Will I have peace in the midst of chaos? 
That's what those trials do. And they're answered to some degree in the nine fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control or temperance. That those are Christ-like qualities that God brings about when he's smashing the peanut butter jar, apparently. But the trial of life, the question that it develops, and the answers from the Holy Spirit in us, who is developing Christ-like character in responding to those situations. The whole theology of this, we're not going to get into deep sanctification conversations, Lord willing, till January 1st, because we'll be in chapter 6, Lord willing. And Paul asks the question then of, how are we sanctified? Well, it's by the work of the Spirit. How do we give ourselves the work of the Spirit? Okay, But in big picture, this is what Paul is talking about, is our trials lead to proven character. How do they do that? They are developing in us Christ-likeness. That is the purpose for which these trials have occurred. I wish I could go further than that, but... Do you know you wrote trail? <laughs> Man. Page six to complete our morning. I guess we are going to have time to do it. We have plenty of time, actually. This is my refresher on the way out today. I'm not going to preach these 12 points. Don't, don't get too alarmed. Just to refresh your mind that the evidence that we will persevere, God promises his perseverance. Here are some reasons why I believe that. God's decree to elect us has a predetermined outcome. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. And whom he predestined, he called. And whom he called, he justified. And then Paul uses a future language of a not completed act because it is so certain. And whom he justified, he glorified. Even speaking to those Romans who were still alive like we are at this time. It's so certain in God's mind that it's going to happen. The first reason that I'd say is why do we know for sure that if we have trusted in Christ... Uh, God is going to complete that work which he has said he would. Number two, Jesus is under promise to the Father and to his sheep directly to keep them so that they never perish. I could not put all the passages I would have liked to put there. And let me just say this. My sheep know my voice. That's one of them. And also, the Father has given, you know, the, the Father has drawn them, and whoever the Father has given to me, I will lose none of them. That's a promise from Jesus that he will not lose you if you're his. Thirdly, Jesus has, is, and will pray for you. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely all those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Other than the question of what happened at Gethsemane in which the son of God said, if this cup could pass from me, nevertheless, your will be done. But every other prayer that you can even mention, and I don't think he doesn't, I don't think he gets a no answer there or whatever. It's already worked out. But the point is, apart from the explanation of that passage, one knows that whatever the son is asked of the father, he will be given. <coughs> he is praying for you. 
I want to see them in heaven. John chapter 17. Those that you gave to me, I am praying for them. That they will endure and they will be here with me and see my glory as I had before I came here. Number four, God can and will preserve us, right? Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Number five, faith is a gift of God. You didn't start this endeavor. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Perhaps theologians or grammarians in the room may suggest that the antecedent to the pronoun here is not necessarily that faith is a gift, but rather salvation is. Uh, Good and godly grammarians disagree on that, but I'd also try to prove that from the rest of Scripture. But grace is part of the package. I'm sorry, faith is part of God's package. Number six, our inheritance is guaranteed. Ephesians 1, and who is given, the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of inheritance and a view to redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The Greek word used there for the Holy Spirit was given as a down payment is the same Greek word that you would have used for a wedding ring as a symbol of, or an engagement ring in our, our parlance, a promissory note that says, I'll be back to marry you. The Holy Spirit was given to you as a, as a, as a ring to say, I'm going to be back. And he's not going to renege on this. He's not like, you know what, I'm not actually going to get married to the bride. And number seven, the new covenant promises that believers will obey. Jeremiah 32. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. Number eight, Paul was sure God would preserve his faith. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Good works is the promised birthright of all true believers. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Eternal life began at conversion, not at death, right? We're not just waiting for eternal life to begin. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, has eternal life, has eternal life, has eternal life, and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Number 11, the elect cannot finally be deceived or removed from their faith. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if it were possible. Not possible. Yeah, but what if people come and the thing and the, it's terrible and those people... If you're one of God's true believers, you cannot be lost. And then God saves sinners, that's the point. Well, what if I sin? What if I'm not as good as I was supposed to be? Right. Look, if you're a sinner, you're qualified. <laughs> That's your only qualification. And I end with my favorite verse in Romans again. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Friends, we have benefits in justification that are day new. They are more than we ever would imagine. And we have a new purpose in our life because of what Christ has done for us. To glorify him, to hope for the future glory of God, and to see it within our own lives. Let's pray.